now. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. And we need him now. For some reason, the cool bars in Hollywood have to be hard to find and have to have no sign. This is the Cocktail Nation. Very special show this week. Sadly, Brother Cleve of Combustible Edison fame and Tiki Drink fame has passed away. And uh, I was quite shocked to, to read this on Facebook. So a special show this week about the passing of uh, one of the grandfathers of the lounge scene, Brother Cleve. So I'm going to bring you a long chat that I had with him back in 2012. That coming up in just a moment right here on The Cocktonation. Here's the Hollywood Persuader sound. Drums a go-go on The Cocktonation. February 14th, 1929, St. Valentine's Day, in a warehouse on Chicago's south side. Doctor Nation with Lounge Leader Coop Cooper and sad news, Brother Cleve passing away a few days ago, uh, doing what he loved most, touring the country with his Tiki Brigade. Latest reports are that he passed away in his sleep of a heart attack. I interviewed him very early on when the Doctor Nation show had just begun and it was a bit of a goal of mine to talk to everybody from Combustible Edison and uh, I mentioned to now speak to uh, the millionaire a couple of times and Brother Cleve was one of the first guys I spoke to from the band and uh, I was a bit worried, actually, because I thought that I couldn't find this interview. When I first started the show, we were running on a podcast server. I can't remember what the podcast server was, but it 
it collapsed while I was actually on vacation. And this is uh, maybe around 2006, I think it was, when portable computers, you know, wasn't really something, you know, laptops and things like that were not that common, I suppose. I was working off a desktop at the time, and uh, so I didn't have time to actually pull a lot of those shows off. So I actually feared that maybe the show was in that particular um, bundle of shows. And then I thought, actually, maybe it's on a particular hard drive that I had. I'm like, oh, no, that hard drive died. I really thought I'd lost it. And I kept looking and looking through all my files, and thank goodness I found him. And it was such an amazing uh, moment to be able to listen back to, to Brother Cleve. So I thought, I'm going to bring you this interview. It's, it's a very long interview. It goes for uh, quite a long time, but every single bit of it is worthwhile hearing. A legend of the scene, a true believer, and he will be missed. Here's this interview. Cocktail Nation. There are bands that just epitomise a particular scene, a particular subculture, a particular type of music. I mean, in Rockabilly, Stray Cats is the band, you know. Mm. Probably for, for, for mods, it, it, it might have been The Who. Um, you know, for perhaps for punks, The Sex Pistols. Combustible Edison did that, and, and that's the incredible thing, and I think that's why everybody still talks about Combustible Edison. Well... The, the band was the first one to do it, so that's, uh, that's going to put you in the running uh, for all of that anyway. Mm. Uh, nobody else was, was, was doing this, this stuff. I mean, a lot of us were listening to the, the recordings and collecting the records, but nobody was out playing this stuff. Nobody had played this stuff live since, uh, oh, you know, Esquivel, when he retired in 1975 or, or whatever. And, uh, so uh, it was uh, the first group of its kind to uh, to do that whole sort of, you know, lounge music or uh, easy listening, as we preferred calling it at the time. The, the term lounge kind of came about, uh, well, we were on our first tour, actually. Yeah. Uh, we were interviewed in, uh, there was a television interview in New York City uh, when we did a, an Esquivel tribute show, and they, that's when they, they started, the uh, reporter there called it lounge music. And uh, it's just kind of, it's an easy term, so it's stuck from there. How did it all come about for you guys getting together? I, I actually, uh, I was not in the very initial uh, days of uh, Combustible Edison, uh, but I knew The Millionaire and Miss Lily Banquette. I had known them for years. They had a, a rock band here in Boston called Christmas. And uh, I was playing at the time with a group called the Del Fuegos, who were on uh, Flash Records, uh, out of Los Angeles, and uh, you know, we played around locally, and I had played with other other bands around around locally, and uh, they, um, Miss Banquet and uh, the Millionaire, moved out to Las Vegas around 1987, I believe, and uh, they were searching for for fabulousness out there. They, uh, you know, they had the Millionaire had been collecting. Uh, the easy listening records and uh you know they both were uh, denizens of thrift shops etc yeah. uh and getting a lot of old fashions and wearing you know he was always wearing a suit and uh uh etc etc so um when they when their band christmas uh started to not really 
do uh, what they had wanted it to do. They had about five albums out, but they had some record company problems. Mm -hmm. So they uh, they decided that after moving to Las Vegas and looking searching for all this fabulous, they realized that it wasn't there anymore. Yeah, that it had uh, it had died and and was buried somewhere in the desert. So uh, the millionaire thought, God damn it, I'm just going to have to do this myself. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> He came up with the the concept to bring this back and came back to they moved back to uh, to Rhode Island actually to Providence Rhode Island which is about an hour south of, of Boston here and um, they decided to try to put something together so the initial thing was a uh, sort of a, a a review we'll call it a uh, it was called the Tiki Wonder Hour. Yep. And uh, this had uh, the original Combustible Edison Heliotropical Mambo and Foxtrot Orchestra, which was a 16-piece uh, group that played a lot of the, the songs that were on the ended up on the first album. And it was this whole show, and it was uh, hosted by Satan. And uh, it uh, was sort of like a Las Vegas review. It had uh, Miss Banquet was uh, was in it and sang "The Best Is Yet to Come" and. Uh, uh, Blue Light, yeah. uh, both you know, uh, which ended up uh, on a 45, and uh, they had a comedian, the suffering bastard, who was uh, a giant tiki mug, uh, <laughs> who told really bad jokes and sort of cried a lot, and uh, nobody laughed at them, which is why he was such a suffering bastard, and uh, other sort of dance acts and, and things like that. There's about a there's about a 45 minutes worth of footage <laughs> that we we have of this. Uh, <laughs> Um, show and it was done in Boston and in Providence um, and it, what happened was the band just sort of went from there they uh, it went from the 16 piece band down to uh, the five people that actually went to rehearsal all the time uh, you know without the string players and the horn players and everything else and uh, uh, ju they just started playing around uh, locally Boston Providence New York and uh, uh, around 1993, I guess it was, they got signed to Sub Pop and put out the first 45 of uh, Crimea River and uh, recorded their album. And uh, then the uh, Peter Dixon, the keyboard player, and Aaron Oppenheimer, who played uh, drums and vibes, mm. uh, told the millionaire that they they couldn't go on tour because they had uh, day jobs. Yeah. And uh, so the millionaire called me. I, you know, he knew I was the a keyboard player, a, a collector of, uh, of fine and swinging music, and that I had been to every single combustible Edison show, and uh, said, do you want to go on the road with us? So that was how, how my uh, involvement uh, started with them, and that was before the the first album came out. And then I, I played all, just about every show with them, and eventually uh, the, the two guys that didn't tour uh, left the group and the two guys that did tour me and uh, Mike Connors who played drums uh, became full-time members uh, a couple of year, year or so later and and you're doing a lot of DJing these days aren't you uh, I am I am I've been uh, as, as a millionaire we've both been doing quite a bit of it he's in Los Angeles I'm still here uh, on the East Coast but uh, he's, he's working on what, Luxuria Music uh, is he still involved with that yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. He, he was the first uh uh, program director yeah. out there when they when they initially started it back uh, I guess that was around 2000 or so yeah uh, and he's he's still out there he writes film scores currently what about Lily what's she doing I uh, she is uh, living in uh, in 
Rhode Island, just outside of Providence, and uh, has been going to school. Oh, really? No, no singing, yeah. no releases, no solo efforts coming no, out? No, she, uh, I think she decided to retire from show business for, uh, for a while. You guys got a lot of national press, didn't you? Because around this time, around in the in the early mid '90s, I mean, we had the the swing revolution uh, that kicked off. One of the things right. that I think hurt swing was it became so commercial and so mainstream, and everybody wanted to learn how to dance, and they saw the gap TV commercials, and they got involved with that way, and it, and it kind of ruined it a fair bit. Uh, I think lounge kind of sat under the radar a little bit to a degree. It it did it did, and it. it... It's funny because uh, that's uh, that's exactly what happened. We we had uh, you know started out like I say around uh, well around ninety one or, or so, but the the swing uh, scene had been starting in mostly in, in Los Angeles, mm. uh, you know, in the, like Royal Crown, uh, that are like in the late eighties, and uh, by around I'm bad with years, but I'm, I'm going to say around ninety five or so, ninety six. You know, you had um, uh, there were the two big um, rock and review. Yeah, that uh, had big know, bad voodoo daddy. Right, right, exactly. Thank you, thank you. But <laughs> I know those guys. <laughs> uh, but you know, there were there were, as you say, mainstream big hit records. We actually opened uh, for Big Bad Voodoo Daddy uh, a couple of times oh, in really? New York, and people didn't really get the correlation. They really were too kind of. You can't dance to it. (laughs) Yeah, because we were more... Our our thing was more, you know, we were into, like, classic film scores, uh, uh, mostly 60s stuff, you know, with uh, Henry Mancini and John Mm. Barry, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And, you know, we really weren't a a dance band, per se. Yeah. Uh, But when those bands had their, you know, they had big number one hits, and, yeah, I mean, there were uh, clubs all over here that would uh, I used to DJ at one and the, you know, they'd have the dance lessons first and it was yeah. free you know and then uh, you know people were wearing the, uh, the sort of 40s clothes the zoot suits or mm. some sort of facsimile uh, yeah. of which and uh, uh, then yeah it kind of got uh, it was, that was short lived and then you know it did take the uh, put what we were doing a little bit more under the radar and there weren't really a lot of bands that were doing the type of stuff that, that we were doing there were a lot more joke uh bands you know like a, mm. a fake lounge singer doing yeah. funny lyrics and stuff like that which we had a lot of the uh, opening acts and, and eventually after two tours we said no more opening acts <laughs> uh, we um, actually made a film called opening act that was the opening act it was a 30 minute uh, film uh, the only member of Combustible Edison that's in it is me. I played the wrestling announcer at the Lucha Libra uh, <laughs> Mexican wrestling match. And uh, it's a very, very surreal black and white film. Uh, the Millionaire was the uh, executive producer of it. And uh, it was made by a, a fellow named uh, Guy Benoit, right. a filmmaker out of Rhode Island. And it's very much in the sense of like, uh, like a Kenneth Anger film in a lot of ways. And the black and white, uh, no dialogue. Uh, the, the entire film is music, and yeah. we would carry around uh, this, the the film and a projector and a screen with us all over the U.S. and, and Europe, <laughs> and showed this film every night as our opening act because we didn't want any more, you know, uh, 
joke bands uh, <laughs> opening for us. Um, yeah, there wasn't so, uh, there weren't that many bands that were doing, you know, the style that, that we were were, were doing. Uh, a little bit of Martin Denny, a little yeah. bit of Esquivel, a little bit of John Barry, uh, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. And then we got more electronic as it as it kind of moved along, where uh, really started adding more. Uh, uh, dependence on the synthesizers and, and things like that. And, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's yeah. interesting you bring that up, actually, because um, uh, a friend of mine said to me, he goes, oh, that's the reason the band broke up, is because they were going in a completely different direction and, and some of the band members didn't like it. Is, is, is that true or is that just a myth? Uh, n- not not entirely, no. No, I wouldn't say that. It just... Uh, actually, uh, Two of the guys just really wanted to. I, I wouldn't say they were opposed to, to that at all. Yeah. Uh, but they were much more a straight jazz musician and yep. uh, were definitely wanted to do more uh, work playing uh, playing jazz. Yeah. So this is uh, you know more like post bop type stuff. Nick and and Mike were doing a lot of that uh, stuff around New England and New York, and uh, just uh, they. And I think they they just. Uh, got a little tired of the touring. Yeah. Too. Is is there any chance we could ever see a combustible Edison reunion? There's always a possibility. Uh, it's, it's funny because we have, uh, even though you know the, the millionaire and I live three thousand miles apart, we actually we see each other fairly regularly. Cause, <laughs> uh, I, I get to Los Angeles uh, fairly regularly, and he gets out here where his family. Uh, lives, uh, you know, a few times a year as yeah. well. So uh, uh, there's been some offers. If somebody makes us a, a good enough offer, uh, you know, I'm sure we would uh, we would do it. So it'd be uh, it'd be fun to get back and you know, after all these all well, these years. If anything, uh, you'd probably have more fans now. This is the funny thing. Would. The funny thing is, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I mean, you guys really kicked it all off. Uh, now there are so many different bands that are playing, you know, similar types of music. Not exactly like Muscle Edison, but, uh, you know, certainly moved into the lounge area. Right, and right. if anything, maybe it's actually grown since since Combustible Edison was around. It's, yeah, that's very true. You know, it takes sometimes it takes a decade. You know, uh, I mean, when we were... The, the we'll say the last couple of years of when we were playing, we were much we were hanging out more with um, the DJs that were doing a lot of the, the more lounge-based stuff. Uh, mm. You know, our friends were uh, Fantastic Plastic Machine, Fiscato uh, Five, uh, Nicola Conte, the Karminsky Experience, Thievery Corporation, Dimitri from Paris. These guys were you know friends of ours that we worked with uh, a lot in in Europe and. Uh, because they were the ones that were actually going back to that initial sound yeah. that, that, like, like we had, and were doing something with it. But you know, it was more. I mean, they weren't bands. They were, uh, uh, well, Pizzicato Five was, but uh, you know, they were just sort of using that as a as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there weren't the the, the bands doing it, uh, but yeah, there are. There's a lot more of it going on now, especially you know, even in the the tiki. Scene, I get. Uh, well, that's another big part, isn't it? That's another thing. I think that's probably given it a fair bit of um, of a kick ahead. Really, is the a whole interest yeah. in, in tiki and exotica again? There's a huge amount. I've been doing a lot of work with uh, Beach Bombberry. Yeah. Uh, you know, working with uh, we've done some. Is that work or is that just drinking, Brother Cleve? Pardon me. Is that work or is that just drinking? 
when you say I'll be doing a bit of work with Mitch Berry. <laughs> well, you know, when you have to create a drink, it's, it's a lot of work just to make sure you get it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a tough gig. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've done some stuff, you know, com- uh, creating new cocktails and uh, events, and you know, where we give the history of uh, tiki and uh, oh. and various uh, side items like that. So, the, the, you know, the, but it, it's true. There's a, a huge resurgence in that uh, here in the U.S. anyway, and I assume... Uh, it seems to be fairly uh, pretty, pretty much. I, I was reading about uh, some some new tiki bar. Um, I think you've got you guys have got one yeah, or two of them. Uh, yeah, down in Mel- continent. Melbourne and Perth. Yeah, we got two two great uh, great tiki bars. You know, there's a, there's a lot of fans out there who are really digging this from from all walks of life, and that's one of the, the great things I find about Lounge too. You know, like um, it's 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 hipsters from from parallel universes you know what I mean from uh, all yeah right <laughs> as Millie would say that's the thing and the, the, you know the, there's really no rules to it you know what I mean you either dig it or you don't one of the things I want to ask you about tonight I read that you were involved in a movie about Esquivel is that, is that true? yeah although it's never come out uh, but uh, I was a um, a consultant that started around um, about 10 years ago because I had known Esquivel for a number of years and had been spending a lot of time with him in, in Mexico and uh, knew, you know, from sitting up with him all night long. Yeah. <laughs> I never went to sleep. Wow. Uh, Why would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. You know, I mean, it was the first time I flew down there, I thought, geez, this guy's like 80 years old. Uh, what am I going to do after he goes to bed at 8 o'clock at night? <laughs> uh, little did I know that, uh, you know, I should have realized, that, and he said, oh, I did not go to bed before 10 o'clock in the morning for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> of course you didn't. You were playing all night in Las Vegas. This thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, I have a lot of great great stories that I, I had from him. So uh, they uh, got together with, with me, and, uh, and I, I met with John Leguizamo and kind of talked about, you know, how he walked and talked and acted and... 20th Century Fox mm. was going to do it, and uh, it they, it got a little bigger, and they decided to go with a different uh, director and right. writer. Uh, still own the rights to uh, to Esquivel's life story, but uh, could it happen? Uh, it yeah. could. There's a yeah. finished script. Yeah, uh, you know that uh, was finished. Uh, but it was about six years ago that the last version of the script was written. So. Uh, at this point, I don't know. I think it's uh, fantastic. You never to see. can tell. It, it may. It was. It was definitely something that uh, uh, you know that was bought and paid for, and uh, you know wants us some money from it uh, at the time. So yeah. uh, it uh, it was interesting because it did. They. I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story, if I may, that about uh, Esquivel had told me about uh, this flying car. I was so going to ask you that question. <laughs> You know about this? Yeah, I've heard this story, and I wanted oh, okay. I wanted to hear it from you. Uh, there was there was talk about him flying around the desert in his flying car years ago. Yes. Yeah. Where, where, in in Vegas was it? Uh, well, he would fly from. Well, the the car was owned actually by uh, Bob Cummings, mm-hmm. a Hollywood actor, and uh, they would get in it and, and fly over to uh, to Las Vegas or, or to Palm Springs yeah. uh, from from time to time. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, what, what year was this? 
This was probably around 1962, 1963, right. 64. I'm picturing a Jetsons type of flying car, is what I'm picturing. Um, no, no. It's, uh, actually, if you you can find pictures of it on the uh, the good old internet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as it turned out, the thing actually did exist. Uh, you know, he told me the story about it, and uh, uh, that, and he said, you know, nobody in his family ever believed him. <laughs> and and I said, you know, I I actually. I kind of remember seeing that on TV when I was a kid. And yeah. He's like, no, you're the only one. You are the only one that has ever believed me about this. I said, yeah, yeah, Bob Cummings. He had, it, he had it at the end of his TV show where he was flying around in it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I told uh, Bob and, uh, and Sherry when they, uh, when they were making, you know, writing the script, I, I told them about this and they were fascinated by it. And they said, well, we've got to just have Escobar flying car uh, <laughs> who cares if it's real or not but we got to do it sure but he did a lot of research and he actually not only found a flying car he found the flying car the actual one that had been bought by a, a couple out in um, uh, the California desert and they had bought it from Bob Cummings uh, probably around 1968 or so and uh, used to continue to, I guess to this day, I know I'm, I'm now going back about five or six years when they, they found this. Um, but it was, they would show it off in, in air shows yeah. in, in the California desert. Um, and uh, it was the, the actual one, and we got some pictures of it. And uh, Esquivel was still alive at the time, and I, I showed it to him. And I said, you know, you're, you're right about the damn car. Here it is. <laughs> and he's like, yes. I am vindicated. <laughs> and he he called his his son and uh, yeah. brother uh, and you know everybody and he's like please said the car is real and see it is real. I have pictures of it now. You cannot call me a, a liar anymore. You know I I was not that drunk. <laughs> I mean it's, it's it is fitting for the king of space age bachelor pop to <laughs> to fly in a flying car. Yeah, I mean. It, I guess, I mean, he told me that they would drink martinis while they were in the flying out to, you know, Palm Springs isn't that far of a flight from, and it only went about, uh, it's about a mile in the air. There were nine of them that were, uh, were made and, uh, you know, so it, it was a real car and uh, he said that the, Bob Cummings came and picked him up at his home in Beverly Hills and they got out on the highway, and he was like, Bob, why are you driving towards Santa Monica? We are supposed to be going to Las Vegas. And uh, I, he said, oh, don't worry about it. And they drove to Santa Monica, where the airport is. And uh, the, these guys came out and took the back off the car and put a propeller <laughs> on the front and uh, uh, wings, and uh, off they off they went. But uh, uh, So that was going to be featured prominently in the in the film. And you know, they had already negotiated with the folks that owned it. So... Uh, that's so, incredible. Uh, out there in the listening audience, if you uh, ever find yourself in uh, the, the the desert of Southern California, uh, look for that flying car at some air show some weekend. Uh, well, there was a story just there. there was a story just recently in the news of this uh, flying car, another flying car someone invented, and it looked very much like the Jetsons flying car. The you know the the um, 
the bubble, you know, roof and all oh, this stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah. I thought to myself, it's it, they sell it for like $37,000. I'm thinking, I so want to buy one of those and I want to take it down one of the main freeways because A, it's going to confuse all the aviation authorities. It's going to confuse the road authorities and I could just fly around above everybody's car. I think, <laughs> why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not? $37,000. That's the price of a, you know, a, a, a good car. Yeah. <laughs> you get stuck in traffic, you just... Just fly over the traffic jam. I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's a perfect idea. Uh, I, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to have one myself, brother Cleve. Uh, it's um. It's it's been fascinating talking to you to you know to sort of hear this, the the backstory of Combustible Edison, and, and I hope to to interview the millionaire sometime in the future. Um, because, uh, like I said, you know, uh, if it wasn't for Combustible Edison, I really don't think a lot of us would have come across this music in the first place. And, that, and that's why I decided to call the show Cocktail Nation was basically in, in homage of, of the, the band, the guys that started it all. We, uh, we appreciate uh, that and uh, glad to hear that the, the, the whole term, the Cocktail Nation, is, uh, is being kept alive because uh, that was our, the, you know, we had the manifesto of the Cocktail Nation and uh, we had our little cocktail uh, recipe books that we sold at shows and uh, uh, had a Campari sponsorship for a while there and... Uh, <laughs> in fact, we had a, you know, the, the drink, the combustible Edison. There was a time there where you had, uh, uh, you, there were a couple of shows we did where you got a free one if you, uh, with the price of admission. And uh, uh, this fellow who's now a bartender at like the uh, the, the hippest uh, bar in New York City called Please Don't Tell, which yeah. you have to go into a, a secret phone booth. And the, the wall <laughs> opens up. It's kind of like Get Smart. To, That's cool. To get into this place. And uh, he was the bartender at one of these places that, where he was making so many of them, the entire bar was on fire. And I remember sitting on stage <laughs> playing keyboards and looking over and I said, oh, my God, the bar is on fire. That's what happens when you make, like, 300 combustible Edisons. So, uh, kids, don't try this at home. Watch out with those matches when you're lighting those drinks on fire. <laughs> Brother Cleve, fantastic to talk to you, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Alright, take care, Coop. Cocktail Nation. Each day you say that you can't forget it. Happiness way is in your own backyard. It could be yours, but you'll never let it. But you try too hard Each day you say yeah, that you can't forget it Happiness way is in your own backyard It could be yours but you'll never you try, but you try too hard to your sad serenade again. It starts, it never ends. And each time I can hear your song, and I know by now that you are wrong. That you made far too 
Nation with Combustible Edison there and Pink Victim. Now, Lounge Life magazine is your free retro magazine. You can download it anytime. It's a free flipboard magazine. As I come across stories of retro significance, I put them in the magazine for you. Because we all know the, the passing of Queen Elizabeth. You'd be living under a rock if you didn't know about that. And Prince Charles uh, becoming King Charles. And of course, the story of him having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles is well known. What's interesting is that Camilla's great-great-grandmother had an affair with Prince Charles, King Charles, I should say now, great-great-grandfather as well. How weird. Anyway, you might like to check out that story. It's, it's quite fascinating. And I tell you what, spitting image too. It's amazing how the genes are passed down. So anyway, you might like to check that out and many, many stories via our Lounge Life magazine. Links via the website, cocktailnation.net. Kids will never understand the poignant self-satisfaction of slamming a phone down on the cradle to hang up on someone and end an angry conversation. Very deep cocktail nation. Thank you. 
cocktail nation. Music for your bachelor pad. The cocktail nation. The cocktail nation show. Coop Cooper, there's no stopping him. Coop Cooper on the Cocktail Nation.
Indoctrination with Tikiaki Orchestra, Bachelor Number 1. And of course, I've got my new segment, which I'm just absolutely loving, bringing you interesting stuff, interesting history facts. Today, much more stuff going on. One of the lead scientists developing the atomic bomb was Dr. Lewis G. Doom. There's to say, Dr. Doom. Well, that's about it, stuff fans. We'll have more for you at another time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Here's Dan Stein, Mr. Cool on the Cocktail Nation. the elevator up to Cooper's penthouse www.cocktailnation.net
she lives on Mars She says, don't worry baby, it's not that far I got a 57 burn that burns up the sky I hope you're not afraid to fly Nation 8 longe leader coucou père.
Indoctrination Exotic Lounge with coronavirus. Something we'd all like to forget. Next week on the show, Words with Wellsy. And I'm going to leave you with Kenny Sasaki now and the undercover man, Stay Up. <laughs> 